Hello and welcome to Creative Welly episode 14, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. My name is DK and you're listening to the audio podcast of the video podcast that is Creative Welly. As ever, the video podcast is produced by John over at Empire Films and also hosted by David at Flashdog Studios. In this episode, I get to speak with two incredible humans. They are Audria Tops Harjo, COO at A44 Games and founder of Inclusion FX, and Alex Matthews, CEO of X Equals. Our discussion leaves no stone unturned as we explore racism, creativity, design, the future, technology, representation, video effects, story, and everything in between, even space. So have a listen to Creative Welly episode 14. What excites you? What really ignites your passion and gets you up in the morning apart from an alarm clock? I'm, I'm happy to, to jump in on that one just quickly. Do but, um, it's, not, it's not a particularly good answer. It's just that I find too many things exciting. Mm. And it's, it can actually be a problem sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're interested in everything, does that somehow dilute your ability to really be interested in one or two things? You know, when I was younger, I was constantly told, um, you know, in business, you want to do one thing and do it well. And it was this very, very sort of Kiwi conservative mm. um, sort of idea that, um, you know, if, in, in my industry, you know, I make apps and websites and, and produce digital things. I'm similar to you, but in a bit of a different corner of the market. Yeah. And you can't just do one thing these days. Mm. You have to do everything. I mean, uh, just looking at like a website, um, it can be integrated with 20 other software platforms. It requires creativity and UI, UX. It requires animation and video. Um, I mean, I could write a list of 100 sort of different disciplines, which m- may be obvious and some may be less obvious in terms of all of that goes into a modern digital production project. Um, and I feel like that's sort of an analogy for my life as well. <laughs> it's like uh, I'm interested um, in Kung Fu. And so therefore, I'm also interested in philosophy. Mm. But I'm interested in philosophy, so therefore, mm. I'm also interested in spirituality. And because yeah. I'm interested in that, I end up in theology. Yeah. And um, I see so many things as interconnected that for me, as I start to unravel my excitement about one thing, I realize that I'm actually excited about almost everything with a few exceptions. Um, so maybe I should have asked what doesn't excite you. Country music. Just for you. <laughs> country music. <laughs> I didn't expect that. That's country brilliant. Music, um, <laughs> Spreadsheets most of the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, well, I'll flip it over to you. What, what, what yeah. aren't you excited in? Because I feel like you and I might have a commonality in terms yeah, of... I, um, I was called to the theater very early. I like a lot of drama. I was, I was a kid, as, as a small child, I would be the center of the picture, no matter what picture it was. <laughs> so it's, it's been since birth, right? So mm-hmm. I was always a performer. Um, I started off um, in theater and dance and loved it and decided that after rehearsing and putting the show up for six weeks, it was just gone and I didn't like it. It was just too much work, just kind of dissipating. And look, there's beauty in live theater. There's a connection there. You're real. But I decided to shift over to film. So I went to film school mm. and, you know, and using all the theater techniques and plugging that into film and loved it, mm. loved it, loved it. And so I just loved, I love telling stories. And from telling stories, I like my, making things. Mm. And, um, and, and learning, of course, uh, and seeing that you're not really represented in a lot of things. So I wanted to change that. So which I went to Howard University for film school. Mm-hmm. And uh, there at Howard, you really didn't have to define who you were. They already knew who you were. So you, you okay. had to skip a step. 
and um, they keep telling you that your stuff doesn't sell or you know you don't travel because nobody really cares about what you're doing or who you are because you're not you know you're not uh, part of the I guess the, the machine mm-hmm. so um, so yeah, I just wanted to just have a voice and I just started making things and making movies and went to Los Angeles and started to uh, help other people make movies because that's how you eat and uh, that led into visual effects, high-end mm-hmm. visual effects, and I loved doing that. I didn't know I loved it until I started doing it, because back in the 90s, nobody knew what that was. There was no school for visual effects. It was course, just like yeah. a group of talented people from all corners and just kind of making it work. Mm-hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to work with a lot of incredibly talented people. Mm. And so I was able to start really, you know, really at a great place because that network, of course, expands mm. into to many other things. But, no, I just like really, I was really good at it. You know, here's a ball of chaos and it was my job. I always saw the patterns and mm. I was able to kind of make something of it and um, and do no harm, I think, is also another <laughs> another oh, no, venue, no. right? Because um, there there's there's a lot of harm can be done, as we can see. A lot of abuses that people don't understand, I guess, uh, well, they do understand. They knew what they were doing. I guess they thought they could get away with it yeah. um, because you're 100 people and you have something really um, kind of um, spectacular to get done. Mm. And unfortunately, creative people aren't necessarily the best people. Right. Um, and they get away with a lot of things that mm. are um, abusive. And so when you grow up in that atmosphere, I, I just definitely took the step of like, I don't, you don't have to be that way. And I've worked with some people. Spielberg was very nice. He doesn't. He was very kind. He does not that way at all. But some people take it to extremes. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So. And now you've end up in that idea of making things, making games. Yeah. So you know, again, it all comes back to eating you guys. And I'm telling you. So I have, I have, I have a baby. Well, she's not a baby anymore. She's 19. But at that point, when you're when you're a single mom and you mm. work in this industry, which is 24 hours, seven days a week, you know, mm. what do you do and how you carve out that space? And I was working, I was, I was just finished working in, in uh, Rhythm and Hughes in Playa Vista, and um, EA, Mobile, EA Games was there. That's right, yeah. And um, I didn't know how to make games, you guys. I, I, don't, I didn't know anything. I didn't play it. I'm a mom. I don't have time to play that. I have to eat. Um, and so <laughs> I just, I, I literally put it out there. I'm like, it's right there. I have to, um, I have to uh, work at EA. And luckily enough, the recruiter from Sony was actually recruiting at EA, and I came in there, and they're like, do you play games? I was like, nope. They're like, well, what do you do? I said, I make stuff happen. They're like, you're hired. Mm. You know, <laughs> after eight, eight hours, of course, but I did there, and I did really well. I was there at EA for six years, and yeah. I, le- I learned because I had to, but I loved it. You know, yeah, and then New Zealand called, and I was back at what a digital, but I'll, I'll let somebody else talk, because that's a long one. <laughs> yeah, I've got so many things. Yeah, there's so many questions and so many things I want to I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to throw them all at you at once. I'll, I'll just start by catching on something you said about I'm yes. um, going to Howard and sort of not feeling as though you were represented and, yes. and looking at how can I help fix that. Yes, um, which I think is a, is a useful segue because um, uh, we actually all have a common connection. It's, it's, it's very obvious to us on LinkedIn if we go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it, it, it sort of unifies this a little bit. Um, Charles Babb. Yes. Um, so I've, I've been sort of writing a cartoon script with him for mm. the past few years. Oh, wow. Okay. And I uh, went and stayed with him in Culver City mm-hmm. um, a year or two before the global pandemic while travel was still a thing. Yes. And uh, he, he also gave that TED talk. Um, what was it? The, the Possibilities of Uncommonalities That's or right. something like that. Mm. Um, 
which I remember clear as day. I mean, it's one of those TED Talks that sort of left a physical imprint in my brain. Mm. And I remember talking with him. I, I, I stayed at his house for about a month in, in LA. And I'm sure he's probably watching this now. Hey, Charles. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that, that was actually a really eye-opening experience for me. And I remember in his TED Talk, he said something along the lines of, why is every protagonist in every computer game an angry middle-aged white guy? And that, that hit me like a ton of bricks yeah. when I started to think more and more about it. I then started to think about the profile of mass shooters in America, and I thought, crap, they're the same. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, and why isn't that more obvious to all of us? Um, that, I mean, in America, I think, I think uh, white people actually represent one of the smallest segments of computer gamers and yet they're still massively overrepresented in terms of character art. Yes. Mm. So I'll put that back to you. So that, do you see changes happening in the industry? Do you think it's going in the right direction or are we still stuck in odd ways of thinking? That's a, a, great, a great question. I think now it's, it's um, the old ways are no longer acceptable. I think for me, um, when Black Lives Matter blew up again for the, you know, we go in cycles every 20 years, you know, mm. the 40s, the 60s, the 80s, now we're back here and again. Um, it's, it's not acceptable for you know, uh, people of color to only be 2% of game makers. Mm. It's not acceptable. Like we're, that's not us in the, in the world. And like you said, it's not us in the consumer. So what's stopping us from you hearing us? Who's, who's deciding that our voices are not important? Mm. Um, and so I decided to you know, start Inclusion Effects, which is definitely at least starting the groundwork of showing that we're here yeah. and showing a little kid that they can do it. Because you don't see, like you said, you know, you don't see us in those spaces. Mm. You know, you know, we don't say the day. You know, we're on the side. You know, we're that magical Negro character that helps. You know, in every so funny, in every Marvel movie, you get one. You know, there's. <laughs> I think we go through it because you can you can Google it and see. Yep, the little sidekick. Right, you know, that's they're gonna save your life at the mm -hmm. end. You know, don't have a backstory. You know, the little kid rode a bike on Stranger Things, didn't ever go home. But you know, but but that's. <laughs> but that's it's there. That's the thing, you you know, and, and, yeah. and when you're when you're when you're when you're a black kid, you 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 you, you internalize all those things. Mm. So is my story not important? So I can't be the lead, and you just start getting this rebellion, mm. and and you there was there was a there was a scene in Old Scandal which I love. It was when when Papa Pope was talking to Olivia Pope, and he goes, "What do you have to be?" She goes, "I have to be twice as good." And she's it's all little black kids have to hear that speech. Because you're not yeah. there's you have to be over and above in order to get into the room, and you know my my logo for inclusion effects is like a black unicorn because I was always the onlyest one like unicorn and rare and I have magic because I would be able to be there because you know imperfection <laughs> was not allowed. And that's what Charles Babb talked about, wasn't it? A black yeah. unicorn. So there's so much again coming round. But I wanted to touch on a little bit. Um, there about the institutional biases, yes. Then, which are, are maybe one. It's not the thing that's holding back the in, well, the the maybe the governance, decision making, wherever it is. But let's sum it up by institutional bias. It's obviously evident through the lack of representation that you just highlighted. Only two percent represent. How can that change then? The institutional bias bit, not the representation bit, because it seems like. Wherever you go here, again, you've got to double it or triple it or quadruple yep. the effect just to get some kind of edgeway when it's up here that needs to move or can it not move? I don't know. I think it just starts with the, um, you know, just a Golden Globe just happened 
yesterday, yeah. and they're saying out of 87 people, there are no people of color. Mm. And you wonder, like, these are the critics that are explaining what's good or not, and they can't see it from their own lens. Yeah. And so how... how so is that all we have? Is that is, is that mm. why Emily in Paris is better than Lovecraft Country? Is that mm. what we're talking? Mm. <laughs> you know, you're talking? Really? Are they? Yeah. They're completely different things, but for sure. So um, I think you have to at least acknowledge, which is why those studies are so important mm. to at least mm. to see it. I mean, I live it, so but I think other people need mm. to um, need the numbers, yes. those spreadsheets you don't like. You know? <laughs> I don't work with them. Right. <laughs> Just don't like it. You do. So inclusion FX, uh, for yeah. those who don't know, what is it? Just describe it. It is um, giving a platform of voice for underrepresented peoples and visual effects in games um, and television. Uh, I've worked with a myriad of super talented people um, in the arena. And, of course, I think that for the last 20 years, there's not one supervisor that's gone through that stage winning an Oscar that I haven't actually worked with toe-to-toe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it seems like it's always the white guy. But there's a whole bunch of people behind that white guy. Yeah. And um, so Sheena Dougal, who uh, is a great inspiration. She's actually a visual effects supervisor on Venom 2. I think she's the first female visual effects supervisor of, of helming a multi-million dollar movie in, in that position. Okay. And um, it's hard for her, you yeah. know, and she's gifted. I mean, she's, she, she was one of the, I don't know if you guys remember the, the, the contact shot where the mirror shot. Of course. That's, that's Seminal. Wait, which movie is this? Contact. Oh, Contact. Yes, right, right, right. that was my big... Where she's running up the you stairs. Mean the, the original Jodie Foster yes. from yes. That's one of my favorite films. Yeah, so I worked on that. Yes, I managed that 165 crew. <laughs> He's nerding out now. No, sorry. <laughs> the, 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 the script that Charles and I are writing literally pays homage to Contact. Yes, that was... Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I, Every day, seven days a week, three months, and I remember we gave work to little baby Weta. You know, there was little babies back then. Mm-hmm. That was where it all started, and mm. it, we're just... It just cemented how incredibly talented and gifted those those scenes were, and I, I loved it. I mean, it just and she made it. that shot happen. So yeah, it was bring her. It back yes, it was her and her partner, and story. they were they were head of the um, it was Flames by Inferno. You know, compositing okay. it has never been done before. I mean, it's still, it's still still a marvel. Jay Red, he's working on All Mankind. He did the Times Ten shot. He was mm-hmm. like all of twenty something and just a genius. You know, so wow. Jerome Chen, he worked on Jumanji. It's Scott Stockdike won Academy Award for. Um, Spider-Man and Jerome. I mean, like, this, all of them are just amazing. Mm. Stephen Rosenbaum and, of course, Ken Rolson had won the Academy Award for Forrest Gump. And so that's why I was really gifted for all the people coming down from mm. ILM to kind of go to school. And I was just so happy. Thank you, Sony, for all that money that you gave them. For so the them. Inclusion FX is turning a spotlight on those types yes, of people. Yes, yes. That type of talent. Yes, to it, uncover it, of to course, celebrate it. Of course. So another one. So Greg Anderson. I don't know if you guys remember. There's a there's a BAMP sequence in X Men Two, and when when uh, Nightcrawler just kind of BAMPs out in the White House. Oh yeah. That yeah. took six months of R and D. Greg Anderson, who's now um, head of production at Fuse Effects, um, he created it, and now it's just everybody uses it. Yeah. And yeah. just super super talented people. So I decided to with few, with wow. uh, Inclusion Effects to just tell their stories. And just like yeah. put a camera on them as much as you're doing now and to say, mm-hmm. well, you know, what inspires you? What would you tell your younger self? Just mm-hmm. so that people can know that you're here. I mean, when I was younger and I was watching Star Trek and I was seeing, you know, Hura for the first time, Michelle Nichols, I was like, oh, my God, we made it. Mm. Star Wars didn't say we made it. But Star Trek did. <laughs> which I think I always, always loved Star Trek better. Of because course, for that. And- we weren't there. Landau came later. But everybody else, it's yeah. like, 
that's what I'm talking about. Like, like friends, mm. there's no people of color in New York for all those years. That, but when you're writing it... <laughs> that's such an obvious statement, <laughs> isn't it? You look back at it now and go, at the time, you, at the, you know, but yeah. Actually, can't wait to show you um, all the character art that we have for our cartoon. <laughs> um, and yeah, let, let's just say it's, 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 uh, it breaks from the trend that we're, we're all agreeing is, is a bit outdated. Yeah. And then with that update, and if it did happen and did move forward, what you get is a richness of ideas and stories and extending it like Get Out was just such a, a, a beautifully done, scary yes. and spooky and, and trippy as hell. But again, that wouldn't have probably have come from a traditional production cycle. Right. Uh, yeah, Bloomhouse. You know, I know Jeanette Voltuner. She was mm. one of the executive producers on that film. Um, again, it's a spin on, it's so funny because we already knew, <laughs> you know, we already knew the stories. It's it's almost like present them out to the world, yeah. like all the Watchmen mythology, oh God, that was amazing, all of right? the Lovecraft country, yeah. all of the get out. Like those are things that we've, you know, we always knew about the Green Book and mm. you can't go somewhere. And it's really funny. You were asking me earlier if I like to travel. And for black Americans, there were certain parts of the country that you can't go into if you wanted to risk your life. Mm. And it was the first episode of Lovecraft Country, as I thought was so brilliant, that the horror was just that. There was no monsters. It was just mm. like, you will die if you were in this town past sundown. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I think that was in my lifetime. Wow. I mean, like, that's, it's mm. almost chilling how, how deep the systemic racism goes in this and it's still there as you can see you know you know you have a place us the khakis the guys with the torches and the, even storming yeah the the capital is roots are very systemic of like yeah. who, who were they scared of like that would have mm. never happened if it was minority people they would have been shot on site mm. and the privilege of them allowing them to come into yeah. that space and just take selfies and run away and like pose and feed on desk. and only a month earlier the black lives matters Riots being dispersed, right, and, because I need and to it's take not a riots. Because, and yeah. I'm going to give you tear gas. I mean, that those yeah. are things that are just the unfairness of it mm. all. Um, I think you know there, and, and then there's strength. You know, you, you understand when when you when you have different perspective, like you were saying, that can only just enhance your world. You know, like mm. you were saying that like it was you had a you you had a physical reaction to uh, a truth because it was universal truth because it touched you. It didn't really matter mm. where it came from and having that openness I think is mm. really, really important. So I just, so so for me, so coming back to your question about inclusion effects, I just want to let people know that we're here mm. and that we we have something to say and that you don't have to be by yourself. Everybody doesn't have to be a unicorn. I'm corralling all the unicorns. I'm getting <laughs> them all together. <laughs> Making a nice farm That's with right. them all to run and That's roam right. free and play together. And connections, all those that. things. Yeah. Yeah. So because you mentioned contact, i now got to pivot into the space space. Yes. Space space. Because you're a space nerd. Yes. Big space nerd. Okay. Yeah. This is a fun thing. I like to poke well, Alex. Where do you want, where do you want to start? <laughs> well, just wh why? Why space? And then where does specifically your nerdiness lie in the space? Because there's, there's a lot of it. Mm. I, think, I think I'd sort of frame that by saying over the past few thousand years, humans have been fascinated with space. Mm. I mean, it, it was originally where we got our navigation, our gods, mm. um, our, our messages from the heavens. Yeah. Um, it dictated so much of our lives. And then over the course of history and science, as we learned more, it took on new significance. Um, but at every junction, we've assumed it's smaller than it is. 
They're like, oh, the stars are fixed. They're just a big bubble that moves around us. <laughs> and then suddenly, uh, exoplanets, you know, up until quite recently, were considered fringe. Yeah. Science was like, well, they might exist. Mm. They might. Yeah. There's certainly one around the star. In fact, there's quite a few. Yeah. Um, but maybe we're special. And we keep thinking that we're special. And the yeah. more that we actually go out there and do science, the more that we realize that we're not. Yeah. Mm. That the uniformity principle applies pretty well. Mm. We've got, uh, you know, stars make dust. Dust makes planets. It looks like planets probably make life. Yes. Mm. Um, we haven't confirmed um, other life out there in the universe yet, but there's plenty of good reasons to think that there should be. Yeah. And um, you speak to the right people, a.k.a. me, we'll say there's plenty of anecdotal evidence um, for them actually existing and us having observed them. Yeah. Um, most of that in quite modern evidence, frankly. But um, nevertheless, I just find it amazing. I think it's the safer assumption to assume that space is vaster beyond belief Mm. that it's teeming and thriving with life, that we're not special at all, mm. that our physics is extremely limited, mm -hmm. and that we only understand a tiny fraction of what the universe is really about, and that pretty much everything that we can imagine uh, is probably real somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's beautiful. Everything you shaped there, right? What I find fascinating about them, there's probably people fall into two camps after listening to that. One would be like, no, you're wrong. And no, we are special and we're unique based on some other principles in their life, be it faith or other arrogance or whatever it yeah. is. And other people like me, I'll stick my hand up because they sound very Carl Sagan-esque, what you were describing, is that we find beauty in that commonality. Mm. And the fact that we're not special or rare is a good thing. And a we special to, thing, maybe even. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, we need to treat each other with that kind of connectiveness that we now believe that we are part of a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. Like the biggest thing for me that turned me into the space focus first was Star Wars. Sorry, I was. It was just my. <laughs> it's all right. My, I was up. I brought up on Star <laughs> I was Wars. There. Yeah, exactly. But then, like years later, I kind of was always in the fictional area. So I love UFOs. Contact was another seminal yes. film for me as well. But then when they did the Hubble, pointed it at nothing. You know, there was that time in the 90s where they pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at nothing for 36 hours, whatever, mm. and it came back with the, the deep field image mm. that's now very famous of all those gal galaxies mm -hmm. where they thought there was nothing. There's yeah. galaxies, not even planets or stars, but galaxies. Mm. Boom. Yeah. It was that moment of going, oh, okay, yeah, we don't know nothing. We mm. are nothing, and that's good that impermanence really should drive us to be more kind and yeah. creative and open and collaborative and uh, reach beyond our grasp. But so, so I have a question you, yeah. to lean Maybe. into your, your space and more sci-fi theory. Mm. Mm. I was always fascinated by the dune of like expanding mm -hmm. your mind Planet and getting from one to the other, mm. you know, in a blink of an eye because mm. you thought it. Mm. I don't know, did you ever, you know, I know it's very sci-fi, mm. but just mm. expanding your perception of time and space, and like you said, you, you, it's a fraction because mm. it's it's out there, multi-universe included. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, what what yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I think it's incredible that Frank Herbert, um, you know, was writing about that at a time where quantum mechanics was only just being discovered and, and barely understood, um, and yet uh, the, 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 there's a lot of sort of commonalities you can, you can derive from sort of his implied technology, uh, and I mean the the. The worms, you know, or sorry, the, um, the, the, the human worm genetic hybrids that they engineer um, who can sort of, you know, get super high on spice yes. and, and use that to fold space and time and uh, travel instantly throughout the universe. I mean, for all we know, there's a perfectly good analogue for that in science somewhere yet to be discovered, yeah. mm -hmm. like creating artificial black holes or 
literally just compressing space-time. Um, I don't think they dealt with the consequences very well of what would happen um, at the destination. Yeah. Because uh, if you compress space-time in front of you and you expand it behind you so that you can sort of you know, take the cloth and pinch it together, uh, you actually risk destroying what you're traveling to. Hmm. Which is why I always like sci-fi, where they're in warp speed, yes. and they sort of drop out like sort of outside the solar system and then they sort of motor in on light speed mm. i always preferred that because mm -hmm. it seems more mm. meaningful to me mm -hmm. yeah the folding yeah always implies you kind of cheating the system yeah. a little bit mm. so i've always liked that concept of you still have to i suppose navigate linear lin linearly mm. through it but at a different now speed I just love to see them like drop out of drop out of warp speed right next to a planet, yes. and they're looking at the planet, and they watch as this giant gravitational wave goes through the planet, yes. and it expands and contorts yes. and basically cracks open as the whole thing goes through it. And they'd be like, "Ah, oh, we should have stopped earlier." That's right. Why didn't yes. we just drop out a little bit further? Up? But then that's where you put on, you know, your gravitational dampeners mm. to, uh, mm. you know, control the space-time continuum yeah. effect. I'm sure that there's that's what you all you need. What what what's that? I agree, and I want to sort of answer your question um, another way, which and I've got a couch that I really don't know. I'm just enjoying being in a format where we can skip yeah. all ideas. Of course, yeah, that's the whole um, point. Uh, I really don't know at the end of the day what to believe. But <laughs> love discussing things. So, uh, in Star Trek, the communicator obviously um, didn't just get realised within a few decades, um, but far exceeded. Mm -hmm. And and the modern smartphone we have in our pockets is yes. be so far beyond the communicator. It's not funny. Um, I wonder not only how much of that will be relevant in terms of devices from, from, from Star Trek, Star mm -hmm. Wars, mm -hmm. uh, Stargate, my favorite, yes, but my different conversation. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, but how many of those sort of, um, you know, quasi-spiritual or, uh, you know, theory of consciousness um, kind of ideas like, like you had in June, mm -hmm. I wonder how many of those will end up being true as well um, as we start to learn more yeah. about the universe without having any sort of clear suggestion to you on what may or may yeah. not be true. Yeah. I just think our worldview has to be limited. Um, I mean, in terms of the um, stimulation that we're able to experience mm. in our human brain, it, we, yeah. we know it's a slight fraction of the stimulation that exists in the universe. Right. So uh, who are we to say that um, folding space and time with our minds or telepathy or ghosts or any of those things have to be 100% impossible? Right. <laughs> Not making a case for them being true. Yeah. No, of course. Just saying, I think a scientific approach on these topics in 2021 is to maintain an open mind. So here's a question for both of you. Does science need fiction in which to help it? Or stories? Leave fiction apart. But does science need stories to help move it forward? I'm going to say people need science fiction. Mm. I think that science as a methodology does not mm. whatsoever. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think the people who do the science will benefit from having exposure to the ideas okay. because it, it, it might guide their experiments mm. or or change what they're looking at. Yeah, aspirational. Because mm. like I go back to that contact film, and obviously that was wrapped around a real life story mm -hmm. and made into then something that a little bit more stretched, shall we say, and nuanced and mm -hmm. sprinkled and all the goodness. However, it had a huge basis in uh, what was known back then as potential rather than fact, you know, that there was stuff going on. But the fact of technology, even back then, I watched it only like probably, well, during lockdown, yes. I watched it again. Yes. And it looked a little bit dated because of the computer soft, right. the computer system, sorry, yeah, they were right. using. Right. It, the acting and the story wasn't, but just yeah. the fact mm. that, you know, 
they were on these laptops, but weren't laptops, and the, they were bricks <laughs> as well. And, yeah, yeah, but obviously, yeah. at the time, that was the state, <laughs> yes. right? That was like cutting edge, but very quickly outdated the tricorder becomes, right? Mm. Is my point. Um, but I suppose where I was going with that is like the story still is pure there that lends itself to be um, to excite and ignite curiosity in others to then lead lean into the scientific unknown mm. in the past. Yeah. So you needed that to kind of ignite mm. within yeah. kids or other people. Oh, but what if? Well, it's an interesting thought. I'll put it to you. Yeah. Um, if we discovered magic, do you think it would actually just be science? I think magic already exists, and I tell you why. Um, it's just energy and will. Mm. And if we're all energy beings and you have an intent and you affect that either by your perception of it, does that make it true? Mm. And so for me and my understanding, it does. So I, I live in magic all the time, mm. if that makes sense. I've, I've been to Weta um, workshop before. I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it, it's, um, it's, 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 it's so funny. I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. Um, at work, I will mention a name of somebody, and one out of 60, right? We have 60 people. Nine times out of 10, if I mention that person's name, they will walk past me. It happens so often that people don't even blink anymore because it's just either I call them to me, Mm -hmm. and it could be, oh, I was just thinking about you. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why Mm -hmm. I have the feeling to call. Worldwide, Mm -hmm. time, energy, space, we're time traveling because we're ahead of everybody. That to me is magic, but I, it happens all day, every day to me. So I'm just lucky. <laughs> that was a very beautiful response of broadening the concept of magic yeah. to encapsulate so much more. I like that too. Yeah. I just struggle with the opposite of what you're implying, mm. which is um, all the times that you think about someone and the phone doesn't ring yeah. or you don't see them on the street. And, and maybe you are right. like, you know, uniquely gifted in this regard. Yeah. I had an experience last night um, lying in bed with my partner and I, I turned to her and I just said, I really wish it would start raining. You know, I love rain. I'm yes. just, I just love rain. I yes. don't know why. And within 10 seconds, just came straight yeah. down. She was a little bit freaked out. <laughs> um, so was I. <laughs> um, she was like, burn you. You're a witch. Well, it was weird rain too. In Wellington, you know, it, yeah. it, it, well, it, it just came straight down out of nowhere. Right, there was okay. no preparation. It had a really weird pattern cadence to it. <laughs> we were both looking at each other going, this mm. is weird. This yeah. is genuinely weird. It yeah. felt like magic. Yeah. And yet, I wish for rain almost every day. <laughs> and it doesn't always happen. And it doesn't happen. So I, I wonder, <laughs> how do you deal with the sincerely boring truths, you know, when they're not magic? I just, for me, I always, I always have their, like they're coming. Mm. Right? It's coming. It hasn't reached me yet. Because mm. that's, you know, it's coming from somewhere. Right. It's, it's almost like um, the, the person appears when you need them to. Mm. You know, I just I just remember when I was introduced to DK, I was like, wow, you know, you should, and, and and because of DK, I met Charles. Mm. Of course, I met Charles I, again. I was I was um, able to experience, you know, such a wonderful mind, mm. and I, I, I mean, it was just, and in that one meeting, you get to enrich your life because that's what you needed. And you're like, hey, I have somebody for you. I'm like, yeah, mm. and and be able to grab hold of that and take advantage of the opportunity. I think opportunities come to everyone. It's mm. a matter of a choice whether you take them or not. Mm. And of course, there's a risk as well. Mm. Can I add another lens into that, yes. that it could be about attention as well? Is that more often than not, when you meet people who are positive, which I'm getting a lot from you, because mm. your cultural heritage being an American, <laughs> you so damn positive. We'll do it. But 
the attention uh, I've noticed in people who just notice a lot of things, notice the right things, and then point at it and say, yes, I'm lucky or I'm positive or I call that to me. It's just also that they can be very attentive mm. and aware, having a higher, high, higher um, bandwidth for awareness mm. to possibilities and connections and intersections. Um, so maybe there's something there as well about having that positivity fuels your awareness, the awareness then fuels your positivity, and it's just a, a feed-in system, a circular system that just amplifies itself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a choice. And it start, does start with a choice, you're right, yeah. that you go, yeah, I'm going to add some uh, beautiful kind of um, energy into this conversation and blah, 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 rather than going into it going, okay, well, how are you going to help me? That's a very different approach, right? And then suddenly, oh, yeah, it was great meeting them. I was like talking mm-hmm. about that. But actually, you affected that by being so open. Yeah. Well, can, can I ask you a question, GK? Because I feel that yeah. I'm quite high level here. Yeah. Okay. I'd be super interested to know how you feel too. And yeah. I'm getting a little bit sort of philosophical here. Oh, I love it. Go ahead. Um, I mean, like, even leading sort of neuroscientists who, who think that all consciousness is, is determined and that we are just a, a machine and a predictable one at that. Mm-hmm. Um, which would feed into a lot of our you know, modern ways of approaching education. Mm. Uh, we believe in constructivist um, education whereby your environment is going to construct your outcomes for you, yeah. mm. which is why we do all these great socially progressive things to try and uh, make it an even playing field. Because mm. we don't just assume that anyone can just say, oh, I choose to be successful, and therefore tomorrow I will be, or a year from now, or whatever. Mm. Um, a personal decision is a very important part of, of that process of activating that person's potential but they're not going to get there simply by making that decision on their own. Indeed. That's correct. They, they need to be nurtured. They need to come from an environment where that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they need enough opportunity to be able to grab onto that ladder so they can climb it. There are all these prerequisites that go into it. Mm. So when we're looking at how much choice do we really have, um, I think I heard a, a podcast of, of a psychologist the other day, or a neuroscientist rather, and they said, we believe that free, free will and freedom of choice is a real thing but we also believe that that's deterministic. And so us having the illusion of free will Mm -hmm. is an important part of how our brain works Mm -hmm. because it allows us to do these things. I don't have an answer to this. I'm just struggling with it a little bit because it's a a chicken eating its own egg or a snake eating its own tail. It sort of wraps around itself. It does. Where does it start? Nature, nurture, free will, determinism? What do you think? You, you, mm. (laughs) Because I was thinking, where's he going with this? And now he hit me with that. Beautiful question. I'm going to be honest. I don't know. I, I don't have the level of uh, intelligence to even start to uncover what is possible within that um, framing of the question. Because yeah, we can metaphorically describe it as just just a you know a cycle that's going to feed itself and blah blah blah. And it's been described in so many different ways. Like that, faith comes into it, right? In order for other people, not myself. Um, but no, who knows? And isn't it the whole point of life is not to expend your energy on things that you will never find out to that degree and then degrade your life? If it adds value to your life, that's mm. a different thing. Yeah. yeah, uncovering or exploring something you can never know, but it adds value, that's great, that's fun. Yeah. Well, you know? I almost feel as though you just articulated right before that a, a okay. process cool. of adding value to your own life, yeah. whereby um, you sort of, the awareness feeds the excitement and, and that they go back mm. into each other. And I feel the same way about looking at myself as a deterministic psychology, but one where I can absolutely humor my sense of free will. However, I would say that 
through maturity, not I'm going to scratch that, not maturity, just through age, mm -hmm. you know, and then experience that comes with that. And not everybody has the types of experience that makes them reflective, but some of us do, right? So then we get to a point, and now I'm 45, and I'm looking back a little bit, and I can also look forward, and I've got that depth of time behind me yeah. and experience. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also can see the road ahead of me that now I'm starting to reflect on some of these bigger questions like the purpose one was really fascinating to me when we started there like only recently in the last couple of years I look back into what I've been doing and mm -hmm. I started as a youth worker really yeah. um, and I started in sports and then youth worker sorry and then local government and then worked my way up and then I bounced around different things and I was into digital and social media stuff and I did a design thinking and I was uh, now I'm a speaker coach and creative producer but really what is it all about is giving people voice so whatever I end up doing, as long as I'm giving people voice through it, mm -hmm. I'll be fine. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's an important... But that's my personal, I suppose, North Star yeah. in the sky that can go, yeah, as long as I keep doing that, whatever it manifests, that's fine. Mm. So I don't need the, know the answers to the questions you're asking. I'm okay. I have a North Star. Mm -hmm. It might change over time as well. I'm open yeah. to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not really answering your question. I'm just trying to make a statement no, I mean, about my intent of why that. I don't um, really... Oh, I'm okay not knowing. Mm. And I, I, mean, I don't know the answer to the question either. I just find the discussion yeah. intriguing. So I wonder how do you feel about that, Audrey? So I'm trying to... I got lost in your story. <laughs> Pretty much I forgot, forgot my own. Um, I guess for me... My North Star has always been, I think, well, I was an avid reader. And when you read and instill all of those wonderful ideas in a young mind, you, they come, become a part of you. And so I never, ever thought that anything wasn't possible because I've been a spy, I've been a vampire, I've been, <laughs> you know, I've been a god, I've been, you know, Lovely, King yeah. Arthur, I've been, you know, all of those things. Mm -hmm before you know in my teenagers years and so i as a child i just remember like how can i leave because i'm done with this childhood thing you know <laughs> and, yeah. and i just i did just kind of get out so i was one of those yeah. old children you know yeah. um which kind of gave me a little bit of a head, head head start in that arena and i was really laser focused on just succeeding and mm. um and uh being out front and uh making an impact as I get older, like you, I, I, you found earlier than I, like kind of bringing people with you and mm -hmm. helping them, um, mentoring them, because you've because we've gone through you know the rough waters and you want yeah. to kind of impart that that wisdom. That's that's what I wanted mm -hmm. um, for me and and just meeting like like-minded people and just being so sensitive to those energies, because people, if you're not around the right people, they'll change you. Mm. And you'll start adapting to their way of thinking. And if it's not healthy, and if you're not, if you're not clear, and mm. you're not really conscious of that effect, you can go down a path. Now, look, that's what youth is for, right? That's maybe you need that in your life mm. to kind of understand what that looks like to bring you forward. But for me, I know how sensitive I am, and I I, I keep my my world very small um, because I know I just always need to kind of mm. point north and point up and kind of be positive because so did you have 
mentors, sorry to cut yeah. you in there, but did you have specific mentors, people that you literally labeled mentors? I and, did. You know, right. my, my mom was is still incredible. I mean, she was just such a role model for me, you know, super smart. She grew up in Selma, Alabama, which, of course, is a mecca, you know, you have the, the Pettus Bridge and, and, and all that struggles, but she still thrived. And my, you know, she met this guy in college, you know, from Chicago and they were singing in the choir and they wanted to move to DC. And mm. so I grew up in this very nice little pond, the Pollyanna, like, is this for real? Like, I was just really idyllic, even in the sixties and, you know, mm. all that. I mean, I was just cocooned in this, this really loving family. And, and that was in DC, which is very, at that time, very predominantly black. And so I never felt less than or other. Because I always had this sense of like, well, you just, if you work hard and you study and you're a good person and you tell the truth, then everything's going to work out for you. And I think I always chase that, you know, and, and, and sometimes I get in trouble at work. I'm like, but it's not fair. And like, who told you it's going to be fair? But I need fair. (laughs) I need that. Um, And I, I think for... You know, going back to America, America's always been aspirational, mm. right? And I remember the world is like, why is America crazy? I'm like, but it's always been this crazy. You just didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was always a wish, you know, not necessarily the reality, because the reality is like, you know, 400 years of slavery, and you've written laws to enslave humans, and, you know, we've traded all over the world, and you've capitalism, and you've told this land, and gave this people smallpox, you took all the American Indian land, all those things, but the heart of it is like, we want to be better. And I think what happened over the last administration is like, that was just what we were. And it was such a shock to the entire world. I'm like, I'm not shocked. You know, <laughs> they're just showing all the warts in all of what's happened to the world. But for, 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 for me, <laughs> because I, I live in the reality, like even, even with all that, it was still going to be, we were going to choose to, to look at a brighter side. Yeah. And I think, you know, through music, through dance, I mean, you know, that's why, you know, it's like black culture spread around the world because Mm -hmm. we had to have something that will inspire us regardless of the depth of despair. There's this rich, like, you know, they didn't call it the blues for nothing. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. always, you know, there's there's something that you get the world. I I just love, you know, and I I walk here, run around Wellington and and I hear, you know, Indian music with the infusion of African music and just, it's just so fascinating to me and it just gives me a little smile to know that mm-hmm. like this one thing is kind of spread all mm-hmm. over the world. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think it's really positive. I mean, like, uh, ask a random New Zealander how they feel about Americans and, and you'll get everything, right? Yeah. You'll, get, you'll, you'll <laughs> yeah. get everything from super positive yes. through to in-depth, um, you know, geopolitical analysis. Yes, it's and, true. And, and, and everything in between. Because um, I was in the States uh, two or three years ago, um, I had a really incredible time actually. I hadn't been there since I'd been a teenager. Mm. And being someone who is sort of unapologetically outgoing, um, that's always been a challenging thing in a, in a New Zealand context. Yes. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of people watching this right now will probably just relate to that instantly. Yeah. Um, New Zealand is not really a leadership friendly culture or a um, sticking your head out and that being a positive thing sort of culture. Yes, um, I know. Mm. <laughs> and uh, it, it's interesting because I'll apply the same sort of frame of reference to America, but I think often our, our, uh, our, our demons are our angels. Our, you know, the the yeah. things that make us awful in this regard can make us great in another. Mm. I think New Zealand's egalitarian society is an aspect um, of it that we love, mm. why a lot of people choose to live and migrate and work here, mm-hmm. um, why I, as a, as a Kiwi, am really passionate about being a Kiwi, yeah. and I, I have no problem being somewhat patriotic about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, but the thing that makes us great is also the thing that makes us stink. Um, in that you know, we're all sort of first among equals, and um, if you try and do anything even mildly ambitious, it's sort of like, oh, careful, you know? Yeah, you, 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 you might make the rest of us feel a bit inadequate. Mm-hmm. Or, or, I don't even know what the, the logic is behind that. Yeah. But in America, I get the complete opposite. Yes. I sit at a bus stop, I have a chat, they're like, what do you do? I'm a businessman. They're like, go you. Yes. You're a businessman. Yes. <laughs> um, whereas in New Zealand, that's, that's a really sort of, yeah. uh, it's a little bit of a slap, you know? Yeah. It's like, I'm a, oh, yeah, I do business. That makes so much sense. Uh, yeah, and so I love that aspect of America. Um, and, and, and yet Americans being sort of um, the, the, the first to claim their space, um, be it sort of with the, the, the way that they talk or, or the way that they, they invade other countries yes, or, yes, or whatever. Yes. You know, it's mine. Yes. So extreme, no, those two polls. It's true. It's so funny. I was, I was, I was hearing a comic, I, forget, I can't remember the comic, but it's like America's the only one that goes to another country and go. You guys talk funny. <laughs> you talk funny, exactly. and they're like, and they'll say, "You don't even know the leader of, of our country." This is like, and it's like, well, no. Go, Let me tell you. Oh, don't tell me. I don't care. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't care. Mm. The leader is just well. I I want to add to something yeah. you said about America, not to keep on America. That's or all right. Mm. But I find it fascinating when I'm doing speaker coaching, and um, especially with Kiwis mm. versus other nations, mm. which I find interesting, mm. right? Now, I have noticed that Americans don't have that fear of voice for lots of different reasons. Your educational system, for one, gets you as a very young age to stand up and talk. Yes. When I was in school, I can only speak for the British educational system. Uh, The first time I spoke properly in a class was in university in a seminar. Oh, wow. So, of course, I'm going to be shit (laughs) because I've had no experience and I'm going to panic and I'm going to run and do all these things and feel awful. Now, fast forward, obviously, where I am now, I'm helping other people to find their voice and agencies and gracefulness up there and have some fun. And I do think when I look back is Americans culturally have it baked into their system, Mm. the First Amendment. Mm. Yeah, the the right to have a voice, in a sense. And then Mm. they're taught to have a voice. And then when, like you said, ask Mm. people what they think about Americans, one of the things would be descriptors would be loud. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just going, no, they're just not afraid of their voice. And that's yeah. something yes. so to be celebrated mm-hmm. and so to be nurtured in other countries. And that's what we lack here in Kiwiland, yeah. I think, a little yeah. bit is that agency. Although I think it's found in other areas because, you know, first place to have women given the vote and other yes. mm-hmm. areas, you know, mm-hmm. um, gay marriage, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But equally, I just think voice is so important yeah. because once you deny someone their voice, mm-hmm. And just the comfortableness of having voice. Yes. Is another thing yeah. that aligns yeah. to that. Yeah. I've got George. a really positive yeah. aspect of um, globalization. Um, and there's plenty mm. of negative ones that we can speak to yeah. as well. But I think a, a, a positive spin off effect is that we can sort of culturally transmute in ways that are meaningful. Yes. Um, so, like, you know, Bruce Lee, take what's useful and, mm. and ignore everything that's not. Yeah. And I've been looking at the success of Kiwi culture in America. You know, uh, Flight of the Concords mm-hmm. and, and Taika Waititi. And we can yes. write a list, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they do well because there's an aspect of our culture which is appealing. Yes. And I, I think it's to do with maybe not taking things too seriously, yes. being really calm and cool-headed. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that sort of egalitarian, sort of let's have some fun with this, we're all on together yes. sort of approach. Team of yeah. five million, yeah. you know, Jacinda does it best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, we've got the reverse cultural transmutation whereby I think especially my generation and generations a bit younger have been exposed to so much American media 
um, yeah. that they're yeah, absorbing it in, into their own personalities. I mean, yeah. there's certain <laughs> uh, Kiwi um, accents which almost started, are starting to sound American. Um, so I, I think that's a really positive thing. I think yeah. New Zealand can learn a lot from America in that regard, and I really hope that we do. Yeah. Because I think for us to um, operate globally with you know, businesses and film and games yeah. and for mm. all of these sectors to grow internationally, I think we, we, we need to have a more positive relationship with leadership. Um, oh, yeah. I'm glad you said that word. Yeah, me too, yeah. because that's what I do. Mm. And that's why, I was, that's why I was brought here. Right, because you know, A44 is is a, is a wonderful startup game company, mm. but you know, Derek Bradley, who's a CEO, he wants to turn into an international company, and what that means is a change, change that natural Kiwi into you have to, Just you're now on an yeah. international stage. Like no, nobody's going to mm. care if you, mm. that person's feeling is hurt. They're going to want to know if it's good or not. Mm. But in that dynamic, it's like, but I don't want to hurt his feelings because I can't oh. tell him because mm, he's going to be mad and. I can't, my heart can't take it. Mm. And I'm like, if you don't get that done, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so there's that natural, and again, it is interesting you say about leadership, there's a natural, you know, kind of a passive aggressiveness, mm. which of course is a nice trigger for me and my Americanness. I'm like, going to say it or not say it? Yeah. But we so, can't because. So here's a, a delicate question, not yes. going to ask you to tell tales after school. Yeah. But what is the difference in terms of your experience of leadership? Uh, based on your own experience back in not just the e-games, yep. but the digital production with all the films and stuff, but coming to New Zealand? Yeah, that's, that's, a, great, that's a great, great question because, um, you know, I, I was a lot for California. Because <laughs> you know, okay. I'm taking East Coast, which has its own personality, yeah. which is very New York, not that I was from New York, but it's very understanding, good mm. government, lawyers, boop, boop. Process like, driven. Hey, let's yeah. go surfing. No, no, not surfing. We're working, right? Yeah. So that, so that was one extreme to to the other. And so mm-hmm. taking that um, and working in that arena, and then now going to Weta Digital. Um, mm-hmm. Weta was huge, and I think that was the first place I well, not the first place, but gifted artists from all over the world. I, I felt like I was an enterprise. You guys, mm-hmm. like, like, oh, it's everybody from all over the world trying to do these amazing things, but it had a lot of Kiwi in it. Mm. And Kiwi right. being like, mm, I'll get to it. Right. <laughs> you're getting paid $100 an hour. I need to cut it now. You know, it was really hard. It was hard for them. It was a lot of social um, currency because, you know, Kiwis are Fano and family and, like, you know, we don't want to rock the boat or, you know, or you'll get shunned like the Amish. You know, I get it. <laughs> I get all that. <laughs> but coming from an outside and being yeah. being a woman of color, being an older woman of color, being a mom, mm. and kind of going in there, it's like and having and having that voice that I've been trained to use. Yes, it, it shocked a couple of people, you guys. And so how did it? Did you have to change? Did you change, or did oh, the system not. change? Oh, I think Jolatiri told me, or do you left it better than you? It was. So I'm like, it. I'll take it, you know, because yes. <laughs> yes. it's, I mean, it was a machine. It's been, it was 20 mm. years deep at that time. They had been there since Lord of the Rings. People had been there for a long time. Actually, Americans was a lot of leadership at Weta, you know, at that time, because they come over for Lord of the Rings. They loved the place and they stayed, stayed yeah. you know, um, and so I was able to really fit in well, but there were certain things that if it was, wasn't broke, don't fix it. And I was like, but it's It could be better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be better. That's a better way. Mm. It could be better. And, you know, yeah. let's fix this. And they were just, why are you messing with okay. our stuff? You know? yeah. <laughs> why are no, you trying? It, please. Why are I'm you trying? I'm getting permission on behalf of all of New Zealand. Why are you trying <laughs> to? Don't. But it was, it, was, it was really hard. But, again, I had that force of will. Mm. Um, but um, 
it was it was hard. Uh, and so, but, but I, was, I remember when I was, I was ending my contract at Edwetta, um and uh, Joe Latier was like, RJ, you know, how do you like working? You know, wh- what do you like to do? I'm like, well, I'm really, I'm really good at really talented, gifted guys who are really, really gifted and, and geniuses. He goes, how do you feel about James Cameron? I'm like, here we go. So here I am going to Avatar <laughs> for six months over there with those dudes. Amazing. But again, being the only woman, only right. woman of color, it was tough. Mm. You know, because they had been with, you know, Jim for since, you know, Titanic. Mm. And they had their rhythms. And uh, and I was always kind of the outsider in. I don't think they quite knew what to do with me. So how do you adapt to your own leadership style then? Do you become quieter? Do you find new uh, communication patterns or languages? So, so, so here's how I adapted. I was just in charge. <laughs> just yeah. I just yeah. not coming until I'm in charge, and yeah. which is producers, and now because I'm COO at A44, I I can now affect that change. So I don't have to kind of sit in the back and go. I just wish you guys would have. If you just let me, mm-hmm. if you let me help you, I could kind of stuck in the middle. You know, what, you know, leaving uh, Avatar or you know the production had shut down for a while, and, and coming back into DC. And just started from scratch of just making movies. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we're just talking making movies, not with a studio, not with a whole bunch of movie with like, okay, here's my sister. She likes doing costumes. Great sister. Let's go. You know, like it was a family, mm-hmm. really a family affair. And my, I was charged with actually build, making, a, uh, turning a family into a production company. When they are, they're, they're on their 12th movie right now. But wow. that was, in the beginning, it was just a dream. And they had the resources and the passion. Mm-hmm. And... That was a great lesson for me when you asked the question of how to, did I have to adapt? Yes, because mm. I was no longer at Sony when I could pick up a call and pick up a phone and call and get anything I wanted. Mm. This is what I had, mm. but I still had to deliver, right? Exactly. Could, could I ask you a, a question? Yes. Um, and by all means, chip in if you've got anything to add. So I'm thinking about uh, I forget his name. I think it's Gabe, one of the owners of Steam. Okay. Um, came here mm. uh, and then lockdown happened early last year. He got stuck in New Zealand, yes. kind of fell in love, yes. and said, right, I'm going to try and move um, some degree of business um, from the States to New Zealand yes. and treat this as, as one sort of hotspot for doing business globally. What, what suggestions would you have to someone like him um, who's thinking of moving the biggest gaming entity in the world? Um, to New Zealand, would you warn him off and be like, it's, <laughs> the first six months is great, but the next 10 years is going to be miserable? It all depends, right? Again, I'm from a unique perspective, right? Because I'm a woman and a black lady and, you know, we're, we're rare, like I said. And so things for a, a wealthy, rich white guy are very different for me. Sure. Just in all honesty, mm. he, I'm sure he has a great time mm. because nobody will ever question whether he knows what he's doing or not. Right. Nobody will assume that he's not prepared. And so for me, what makes me live it is that, you know, if you talk to, you know, a 50-something white guy, you wouldn't ask the same questions as you would for me. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my anger kicks. I'm like, would you? Yeah. Why are you? Mm, yeah. You know, and yeah, so that's... and it's and it's not really their fault because they haven't really mm. seen anybody like me. Because New Zealand is so sheltered in that way, because you're the bottom Indeed. of the world, you don't mm. see and get a lot of exposure. So I have to be kind in that arena. But still, when I first came to C2 and they were like, wouldn't you be more comfortable somewhere else because you look different from us? Seriously? And if that wasn't the most racist thing ever, but she, she thought she was helping me. I'm going to help you. But again, oh. those are the kinds of things mm. and the microaggressions mm-hmm. that you know you just absorb going through the world, especially mm. in another country. Indeed. Um, yeah. 
Uh, and so I kindly said, no, it wouldn't. I'm here. I work at Weta. My kids as close as here and C2 is great. But, you know, it's, it's, it's those things that they don't know any better. Mm. It just makes it just challenging. But that's what happened executive coach, you guys. You know, just to get the anger <laughs> to you need get that it out. Outlet. Yes, definitely, which is the mentor inside as yes. well. Just to, it's and, tough, uh, you know. But I, they didn't know. You know, when I came to Weta, they didn't know how old gonna, New Zealand's mm. going to affect me mm. because they look like the rest of New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, they have a different story and experience. Yeah, I'm sorry I cut you off, but... No, yeah. no, not at all. That's just that's what happens in conversations. <laughs> so yeah, I got some more. I got some more. Um, I did want to ask specifically about your video. Uh, sorry, your producing experience. Yes. Just because I'm always intrigued by leadership from other areas and how it's the same thing but with a different hat on. Yes. And I think it will speak to something because I would love to throw it back over to you after I ask this question. Yeah. It's a broader leadership idea. Is what leadership skills can you take from your experience as a producer on major movie pictures and video effects yep. areas because it's part of a bigger thing? Yeah. And then in the corollary to that, I suppose, throw it over to you in terms of how do you manage, you know, a massively creative but logistical nightmare that is building these apps to fit webs and stuff yeah. and i think there's the same answer but in different fields here but i'll start with you if i saw it yeah that's a, that's a great question for for me uh the the linchpin or the foundation is always an honesty and an integrity nice. um okay. you know i i am who you see mm. and i have my values are always um you do what you say and say what you do mm. and that's across the board you will always know where you you stand with me I'll be always be very honest and very direct. And so when, so when you have that base, that's how you lead people. I, I expect that from everyone. Um, and it's like, Roger, everybody's not like you. I'm like, I know, but I wish. Um, but, but still, you know, that, cool. um, yeah. that aspirations. Like, I know you're going to deliver because I've asked you and I, I believe in your capabilities and I know you can do it. Mm. And putting people in the right place. So I have a really good instinct of like people. Mm. And all because I've done everyone's job, you know, either through film school or, you know, working in, you know, the, the um, uh, slings and arrows of any kind of production you can think of, I know what that job entails so I can mm. speak their language. So, um, yeah. and just mm. having that vision to see it from the beginning and the end when nobody else can mm. and putting the right resources and, uh, and time and effort and being honest about what that is. And I can't stress enough how honest you have to be with mm. the people you're working with, mm. where you are, the money you have, the, the talent mm. you have. Mm. Like you, you cannot shy away from that, in my opinion, or else you will fail. So I'm always brutally honest with myself and where we are because you won't be able to react or get anything done if you're not transparent and honest. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything echoing? (laughs) Yeah, I I sort of thank you for answering the question so well because um, Mm. you articulated something I was was struggling with. I was Mm. thinking, oh, shit, how do I I answer that? Um, But I think you're right. My my answer in in sort of the software engineering, um, high complexity digital project Mm -hmm. um, sort of world, it it really does for me, after 11 years of doing this, comes down to uh, integrity, honesty, being being really, really straight up about what the realities are with all people, um, and about being sort of able to cut through a a lot of BS, which Mm -hmm. frankly just dominates the industry. Yes. I mean, not many people realize that um, 
just in the government sphere alone, it's close to two thirds of all IT projects fail. And the taxpayers funding those, mm -hmm. you know, which is um, obviously, wow. yeah, it's significant. <laughs> I, I think the term is sort of a throwaways or, um, or, you know, basically projects that generate no outcomes. They might even have a working thing at the end, it just doesn't get used. Um, right, or yeah. maybe even gets that far, it, it, you know, they, they pour in half a million and they sort of cut it off halfway through for whatever reason. Might be a change of government or whatever and politics change, right? So I can imagine, yeah. Although I think a lot of it is probably not political. I think most of it comes down to, to the way that the, that the whole process runs, the way that uh, government engages the digital sector. But I, I don't want to get stuck on just government because, mm -hmm. frankly, the problem is, is, is sort of ubiquitous across mm -hmm. different sectors. And it comes down to people being dishonest. It comes yes. down to this sort of really manipulative sales culture, mm -hmm. um, which has came up in, in the IT and digital world, I think, since the 80s and 90s, yes. where... Um, you know, big white guys in, in suits used to sell IBM. You know, oh, we sell IBM, we sell computers, you know, and, and it was it had nothing to do with the technology, really. It was just the relationships that they had and, and me talking to someone who looks like me who I trust. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's been really pervasive throughout the industry and, and is still true today, whereby getting a, a big government project or this project or uh, this and that will probably come down to who you know mm. and your ability to take them out to lunch or impress them or, or meet their expectations of a first impression yeah. mm. as opposed to your actual ability to deliver or the quality of what you're delivering yeah. and it's so nuanced and so complicated um, speaking the language is essential you know like I've got sort of several different languages I've got to speak in terms of being able to communicate between a client and a developer and a designer and all the different sort of moving parts that go into a modern digital product mm. And so for me, it's, it's being honest and speaking the languages. Um, that, that's the similar answer I'd give to sort of how to navigate the digital production world successfully. Um, but once you start diving deep into that, there's a lot of nuance. And I get why, at the end of the day, we kind of do need to just do business with someone we trust. Yes. Because you're not going to specialize in 25 different you know, technical understandings. Mm. Um, from coding languages through to open source yeah. frameworks, yes. through to project management methodologies or DevOps pipelines yes. or whatever it is we want to get into. So I don't expect you or the government decision maker or, or a business person who wants to build a new innovative app or platform or product, I don't blame them for not knowing all that. I don't blame them for needing to deal with someone they trust. Simultaneously, it's a massive bloody problem um, because it means that the potential for, for manipulation and for just confident right. sales culture yes. and just, just trust me, you don't need to know about the technology, you don't need to know about these 25 super important things, um, which will... Yeah. Tw uh, 25 different pain points for you over the next five years if you get them wrong. Um, no, just trust me because I look like the right guy for you. Yeah. And, and that really bothers me. And, and to get ahead in the early days of my agency, I was a part of that too. You know, mm. I'd just go into a sales situation just being sort of um, just confident because I knew I had to be in order to get them to give me the money to build the thing. And like yourself, mm -hmm. I just want to build cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, and yet throughout my career, I've sort of ended up on this... It's better to be honest. It's better to say, look, don't do this project. I don't want your money. You shouldn't be spending on this. It's a bad idea. Or that we don't have the capability. Sure. Yeah. Or, or, or just, skills. Just or someone else done the road can Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is best suited to this other person. Yeah. Um, and you need to reimagine how to do the project. Because I'm mm -hmm. interested in you being successful as opposed to just taking your money. So yeah. sorry for the, the long answer. But I, I feel as though you really it. touched something um, like a, a nerve with me um, in terms of Honesty and speaking the language, because it sounds simple, but I think those are the two principles which sort of pin up um, my approach to my career these days. Yeah, I love that. Mm. Thank you for being so open with your, you know, kind of learnings <laughs> and that. I was thinking while you were describing that, 
when you were saying about people promising maybe things that they can't deliver, not knowing everything and kind of tricking. Does that ever happen in the in the games and film industry where Yes, they try, but because I've been so many different people, they can't get away with it. Right. <laughs> they can't get away with it. Bless them. Like I we had one writer who were really nameless. You know, he was um he's like, Well, you know, I went to film school, he's a video writer, I went to film school and that's that's great. So did I. He's like, oh, <laughs> because she's not expecting that level right, of yeah. art and video because it's software engineering, mm, right? Sure. Software development. And so usually those lines don't cross, especially mm. with a production person. I'm a production person. I had a minor mm. in dance. Like, what are mm. you talking about? What do you know? <laughs> but because of that crazy, you know, William and Mary, if you were, if you majored in a fine art, you had to minor in a science. So mine sure. was physics. So oh, nice. it yeah. forces you to be well-rounded. So of course, mm. when I when I worked um, at Sony and knew nothing, the ability to just learn quickly and just figure mm. it out and just absorb from all the brilliant people, you just just say, "What do you do? What do you do? Mm. Okay, well now I got that. Let's put this together. So you do it. So how long it takes? How long does it take to do that? Can you do that faster?" And they're like, "Oh no, we gave her power." You know, but but that's how <laughs> it just starts. Just one mm. listening to. Yeah. Whether that's how you get pick up the language. I was mm. never a coder stuff. You know, I did mm. some simple little wiki stuff, but that doesn't count. But like you know, the language. And I remember when I my first job was actually in software, mm. and the software um, uh, director was like, "So you know any languages C plus plus or Perl or any of that?" I'm like, "No." He goes, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "I tell people to do really well." Because you're hired. <laughs> but it was true. You know, you just kind of find <laughs> you use that strength of like that mm. confidence and that chutzpah. Like I didn't know anything about anything. But I was able to be really successful because I had a great team and I picked it up and I was ex- mm. I was effective. Mm. But even after that, they're like, you need more HR training. You know, because I was almost too effective. <laughs> but it's, you're going to get us soon. But in a, in a way, because I was so single focused in getting it done. Mm. And there, like you said, people also has different languages. Yeah. And because I've been so surefire in this way of like, what's the outcome? What's the... How do we get this all done? Going back to your Kiwi question, Kiwis are very much a relational spectrum, relationship mm. and social. Mm. And for me, I'm like, are we done yet? You know, because that's why I'm here. I'm here to get it done. I'm like, I'm like, she's not playing well with us, but but, but are we done? You know, <laughs> that's nice, but are we done yet? Yeah. You know, so that's, I think that's the inherent kind of um, uh, push and pull that I with my crew at Weta and but and also with A44. But I'd already gone through the culture shock at Weta and came mm. back like 2.0. I'm like, okay, that's the thing, and that's the trick is, is to learn, yes, and incrementally change or, or or iterate anything like language and stuff like that. I did have a very specific question uh, for you, which was because I really enjoyed uh, Raised by Wolves. Okay. Uh, which is a HBO series. I don't know if you've seen it. Heard of it. Yeah. Right, by Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really surprising because I just like found it and I was like, oh, okay. And then Ridley Scott's name popped up. I was like, ooh, yes, yes. know him. And watched it and it was like different, cool. And it was, and then you, your name popped up as the VFX producer. Yes, so I worked for um, Mind and Machine, and this is this is how great their network is, right? Mm. So Billy Brooks um, was the um, visual effects supervisor on Raised by Wolves. I worked with Billy at EA Games, uh, and, right. and he was a lighter, but he'd also come from ILM, so he had ILM pedigree, which is also mm. always fantastic. And he decided to strike out on his own. He created this whole nice little visual effects company called Mind and Machine, but it was just him and another artist. 
and they didn't have a production person and they didn't have any of the the structure around to support now we work for HBO. Now it's not right. just a commercial or a couple of shots I'm going to do all night. Like This is a proper show. And so he brought me in to help structure. Now, you guys, I was still in D.C. and they were all in Los Angeles. So I had to manage them from my kitchen, which my favorite. And I, <laughs> so I managed the entire show. Wow, not the entire the show, table. but at least the shows are awarded to, to Billy and... We had to get shotgun, and I had to. We had a we had a crew here in New Zealand um, who I'd work with on Contact, who, who lives in Nelson. He was one of the compositors. I had people in Minnesota. I had people, and it was all over. Wow. It was great. And so I was I was on East Coast time, so I was up before mm. everybody, and it worked out great. You know, it was fantastic. Had talked to me with the production uh, with the practice. Ruth was the uh, visual effects producer for the entire mm. for series, but I did I think series uh, show three through eleven or. At one of those. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. The majority of them. Yeah. 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 But it was good. It was. It was. It was. It was great. And, it was, and of course, I'd already accepted a job here um, at A44, and before I got, right. so it was a nice little kind of in between. It was like a six month thing, and it was That's just wild. perfect. Yeah. Magic. See, it was like you know, magic. <laughs> well, well, speaking of magic. Um, uh, for me, it, it's, it's magical to be sitting here with you today. Oh, thank um, you. Because, like GK, I'm also a fanboy of some of the things that you worked on. <laughs> And I've been dying to ask, okay. um, can you share anything from working on Starship Troopers? Oh, my gosh. That's one of my favorite films of all time. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I remember Starship Troopers was my second big movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were working with uh, Scott Anderson, was a visual effects supervisor. Scott Anderson had won an Academy Award for Babe in visual mm-hmm. effects. Okay. Um, super gifted, also ILM alum from Brown University. He, his claim to fame was when, you, when T2 walked through... The bars doing all that liquid work. Yes. That was, I think, that was his claim to fame. You know, just genius, genius. With the level. gun left behind. Yes, right? yes, yes. So good. Um, and we were responsible for the um, not the work as Phil Tippett did the the creature work, but it was all of the big explosions in space. And I remember okay. sitting at Daly's going. Can things explode in space? There's no air. So this is the random light scene as they're approaching um, the first bug planet and they've got all the the big bugs, you know, Mm -hmm. farting their um, plasma into the sky. So, yeah, so so a lot of... (laughs) Beautifully put. That was how it was in the script, by the way. So all the big, you know, the big things... And, um, and, 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 and Scott was meticulous about the color and the, and, the, okay. uh, and the explosions and what that looked like. And we see shots over and over and over again until they were perfect. And I remember Denise, bless her heart, she would, there was this one shot we kept seeing. Because we see the shots over and over again. You have, we just see ch- small chunks of it mm-hmm. repeatedly um, until the shot's perfect because we layer upon layer upon layer. Of course. And there was one line she said. She said, Plasma Man from the planet. And we just die because it was just so... By that time, we've seen it over and over. It becomes absurd. And Scott was like, any more people laugh at Starship Troopers? Like, we can't help it. It's America. But um, <laughs> it was just... And he would just make people cry because he, he's so tough and such a perfectionist. Mm. But... It looked beautiful, you know. It's still still the test of time. And I saw Casper actually. I was at Comic Con, mm. and um, I, I saw him walking in. I'm like, "Hey, Casper, it's been a long time since I've seen you." Because I worked on Star Trek Two. He goes, "Hey, mm. Star Trek Two first. He took pictures and said hi to my kid. It was really, really. Which fun. one was Casper? Sorry, he I was the, he was the Rico. He's like the lead oh, guy. Rico. Oh, Rico. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But that's all right. But it was he was very mm. gracious. Real and name, writer, right? Right. right. And the writer was there. Yeah. Right. Say, I, I to this day feel betrayed by the sequels. But, 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 but that, that first film, um, yeah, I mean, that, that set the standard, which I think it has, yeah. it can still up to one day in the future, mm-hmm. I hope. Yeah, very, very fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, I did that. And then right after that, I did, I think, Godzilla. 
that was the Matthew Broderick version. Yeah, right. Uh, and then I switched to animation for Stuart Little with the old Matthew mm. Broderick, mm. and I still remember all the dialogue. Bless, because you've watched those shots Watch over, yeah, and over, over and over and over yeah. again. Um, and they did Hollow Man. Uh, that was a okay. hard yeah, yeah with yeah. Uh, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, actually. yeah, that, that was, was that was a yeah. good one. A lot yeah. of lot of um creature work of like internal like this is how things are made fascinating almost like and you had to build the veins right. and see what that looked like when the little, oh, when the gorilla disappeared did my bacon factor just go from three to two right i think it did <laughs> i think it just did because yeah. now it's boom 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 right. shit yeah i can claim that as well yeah. bacon factor bacon Same. factor as well i love that yeah sorry no, pardon me i'm sorry no but no but that's 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 great and um Really funny. I, I loved Hollow Man because that was that was a point when I realized I, I was I was uh, manifesting my magic when mm. I realized I had it. So um, mm. I also was a, was a, um, a student of Kung Fu. I mm. studied Wing Chun, mm. and That's um, a nice, and I was a huge fan of Jet Li. Mm. Huge, huge, huge. The biggest, biggest, biggest fan. And I remember going through a really hard time. You know, movies, you guys aren't really good relationships. They crumble because you're working all the time. And so my marriage had kind of fallen apart then. And um, I just needed something. And my, my good friend, Wayne Kennedy, he said, Orange, when are you going to come to this card show? It's something... It was like, you know, they sell T-shirts and trading cards. And they okay. have like... And at this time, I think Roman Must Die was coming out. And Aaliyah's movie with Jet Li, and mm. Jet would just so have to be there to sell, did not sell anything, but just to give autographs. And so we stood in line, and he was just so gracious and like signed my autographs. And I was like, thank you so much, Jet. He goes, you're welcome. And my friend Wayne was like, he talked to you? He didn't talk to anybody else. Why did he talk to you? And I was like, I know him. You don't know anything about him. And I'm like, and he talked to you? And I was hooked. I'm like, who's this guy? And of course, I see little footage of him. Like with with uh, I think Nixon, he's like a little baby, and he's mm. like doing kung fu, and I just loved him. And as lo and behold, I was like, you know, I need to bring Jet Li to Sony, mm. and it's just a crazy idea. They had me wow. joking, and so bef- while we're doing um, dailies, like of, like when we show the the footage of things right before Hollow Man, I would show Fist of Legend, like chapters, like chapter three, and I just played the twenty minutes while people filed yeah. it. I did that for months and months. And so back in the day before Facebook, you guys, it was like forums. Like, okay, I'm going to be on the Kung Fu Jet Li forum mm-hmm. and start talking about how great he was and all his movies were. And one of uh, a student from UCLA wrote back, goes, oh, you know, can I come see you? I'm like, sure. So he came out from UCLA and he goes, wow, you're really a producer at Sony. I'm like, yeah, I, I work here. It's really true. He goes, okay. <laughs> and he went back. He's like, I work for Jet Li. I'm his writer. Wow. <laughs> so that was... Whoa. So from there, I met his assistant, Beaver Kwai, who was assistant. And I was like, hey, can Jet Li come to Sony? And he goes, hold on. Jet wants to come. And so in six months, Jet Li showed up at Sony Pictures. Because I of you, like, let's just oh say. Oh, my God. Yeah. And people were like, what just happened? And so I was like, I think that's a magic happening. I think wow. it's, that that was the first impetus for me that... If you put your mind to it, no matter how far fest and mm. how as long as you're you're pure, and I just had really no ulterior motive, just like I was just such a yeah. huge fan and yeah. such just a nice person, and I was able to uh, be a part of his um, inner circle for a year. Mm. Like I remember we were at his his place. I heard "Hero" for the first time in Chinese, wow. being translated for it's me in real time. Mm. You know, volleyball and like movies and just an overall just nice guy. I remember being on the set of the one, and the producers like, "And who are you? <laughs> like, why are you in Jet Li's car <laughs> being chauffeured around?" I'm like, guys, he's I'm awesome. I'm me. My face is he's my ticket. Awesome. 
you know. I, I, I'm reminded of a film he did, which is, uh, I think, a British film with Morgan Friedman and Bob Hoskins, Uncaged or yes, something. Yes, yes, yes. It was during that time. Unleashed, yes, it was uncaged. something like that. It was, and it was a dirty little film. But yeah. again, he was riding high and the yeah. talent that he no, so, probably so still nice. has, right? And uh, yeah. And so let me tell you how it goes full circle. So we, I was at Cannes for, for a movie that I made as a short film. And Kiss the Dragon was showing. Of course, I got to go to Jet. Had a had to go to his party. And it was so fun. And so I met, um, I saw his assistant again. Cut two guys. 16 years later, I'm now teaching in Beijing, and I'm teaching film production, mm -hmm. and lo and behold, I reconnect with Jet Li's old assistant, who is oh. now a producer in Beijing, and he takes me to go Peking Duck, and we have the mm. best time. We take a little side-by-side, -side, like 20 years later, you know, um, from camp, and now we're in Beijing. Yeah, that so happens, right? So much fun. Oh, yeah, when it. you meet people later on in your career, yeah. it's fun. You're too young. You don't know. <laughs> he will. He will. He'll yeah, have definitely. those. No. But, but yeah, just that's how life is. I mean, just it that's is. when yeah. I realized it's like, you know, I can, as simple mm. as it is, you can make up mm. your reality just by how you see it, you know, what lens you're wearing. And I, I've got to bring Alex back in here just because the time that I've known Alex, he has definitely manifested lots of good things. Because I think I was trying to work out when I first met you because I was going through LinkedIn. 2013. Mm. See, you know. Yeah. And I think it might have been TEDx Tiaro, the second one. Yeah. Am I, yeah. I, I actually approached you at TEDx Tiaro after um, there we go. Gertrude Marche had just spoken and it was the break. And I think I went up to you and said, um, my brother bought me a random ticket um, to this event. Yes. And I've always wanted to experience TED and here I am. Um, and wow, go you. This is incredible. Um, can I help? And you I, remember mm. I remember that bit. I remember that bit because then I kept hold of you. Because <laughs> mm. I was like, if anybody turns up and says, do you want to help? You go, okay, because yeah. I'm doing this for free and I need all the people who want to help. And then obviously we got you involved in 2014 and the following. Mm -hmm. That was the first TEDx Wellington. Mm -hmm. um, and you've been part of that since day from, yeah, from everyone, I think, since in some iteration, right? Mm -hmm. But I've also watched you go from like a two person to a four person to now whatever you are. Uh, with X equals, and I know you contract we, we a dozen FTAs. Yeah, so, so, and you yeah. grow and contrast, mm. uh, contract uh, depending on the gigs that you have. Mm. But I'm really kind of just want to celebrate you in that regard because you've sustained something which is really hard to sustain, which I think is in the current environment as well in the last couple of years because of the projects and the silliness has gone on. Because you did touch on it, but, and I'm not mm. going to bring it back up. But I just want to kind of ask you how you're feeling about the future of X equals. Yeah. Okay, well, th thanks for asking. Um, and, and giving X equals a bit of playtime, because why not? Why not? Um, yeah. if, if, if you want a fantastic, uh, you know, web system <laughs> or app, or uh, X equals also owns Frost Flame Games, which is my gaming company, and we do um, board games and mobile games. Okay. Um, the short answer is I'm feeling really good about the future. Mm. Um, the long answer is that, yeah, we have been... Um, sort of privy to the, the shifting sands in the global marketplace over yeah. the past sort of year, ever since COVID, really. Mm. Um, but just like, like, like any natural disaster, you know, it sort of reveals the weaknesses in structures. Like an earthquake will take out the weakest buildings. Yeah. So for architects, you know, earthquakes are great um, because it means rebuild all the weak structures. Mm. Um, and I think in the digital agency world um, and probably in the gaming world as well, we've seen similar things happen where the non-resilient companies or the companies that had so many systemic problems to them already yeah. Uh, sort of fall off the radar pretty quickly.
Mm. Um, and the ones that can be innovative or can be, you know, apply creative leadership or deal with problems in, you know, not so obvious ways, uh, that they sort of rise up through that canopy and natural selection dictates that they stick around. I think we're very much in that camp. I think that X equals and the other businesses I'm involved in um, would find a way to keep creating amazing things no matter what. I mean, that's what we're motivated by. And frankly, we don't even need a company to do that. Mm. So uh, we as a group of, you know, a high talent model company, um, which focuses on having fewer people um, who are doing more things better. Mm. Um, I, I suspect you're a high talent model as well, because I looked at the team page of some of your other companies <laughs> and they're like pretty, pretty cool people. Um, I feel really good about the future of our business and, and, and the businesses I'm involved in in general. I think the older I'm getting, the mm. less I can sugarcoat the challenges. And I don't just mean for myself or, yeah. for, or for the people I work with. I actually mean in the industry itself. Um, and I suspect that a, a big thing that's going to happen over the next 20, 30 years, or hopefully sooner, which is going to be really positive for my industry, yeah. is digital nativity and competence yeah. coming up through executive and government decision making. Because we're still in a reality whereby we've got people, you know, white guys in their 55, 65, you know, they're still clasping onto their income power. You know, they are the boomers, and yeah. my parents are boomers, and so, hey, I love them. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, they do represent a very specific generation yeah. who is a, thinks in a very specific way. And they think that managerial bluster and confidence is going to be enough to get you through a $120 million purchasing decision. Yeah. And, oh, I deferred to, to Mark. He's the IT guy, and he said it was all fine. Yeah. Um, even in that scenario, I'm sorry, if you're making big purchasing decisions, mm. you need to understand your subject matter. Yes. We don't apply the same logic and say defense. You know, if, 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 if defense mm. is buying a, a, a naval vessel or an aircraft or, or a weapon, they don't just say, well, I'm a manager, and I went to a managerial school, and therefore I know what the best rifle is. Uh, no, they've got subject matter experts um, who've been in that industry since forever, and they come in and say, um, look, you know, this is going to be the right rifle for your needs. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I don't really like using military or defense um, analogies, but they actually do apply quite well, because when there's something that's serious and that critical, we don't leave it to chance. No. Right. And yet um, we're making bigger purchasing decisions mm -hmm. in the digital production world, because you know, like the, the IRD um, website, the business transformation project that started in 2014 or 15 and is still ongoing, mm -hmm. that spent- Which is crazy. Billions of dollars. Yeah. But more than our defense budget, as far as I can tell, yeah. has gone into um, building a new system for collecting money off New Zealanders, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. um, Should I have just, a question, I have yeah. a question for you. Sorry. Um, yeah. No, don't, don't be sorry. Yeah. Um, do you think that the manager and the artist, being the artist, being the software engineer, can they fit do they naturally fit in the same body? Mm. Can the artist and the designer fit in the same body? They yeah. can with my business partner, Rocks, because yeah. he's amazing. Yeah, but is that is that a rarity? Because usually sometimes I feel that you know software engineers tend to go into the minutia, mm. and of course management is trained to do the opposite. And it's really rare and a really mm. extraordinary person who can do yeah. switch their mm. brains into both places, which is why a lot of times the software I've found mm. that it's kind of dysfunctional in a way because they can't see the through line, they can't yeah. see the horizon because they're designed to see the base. I, th I think you've actually nailed it pretty much because it comes down to understanding your subject matter. And uh, I, I think the best leaders in the digital production world are left and right brained, or I mean, I, I know that's somewhat controversial these days to use that term, but they're, they're creative and they're logical. Yeah. 
Um, they, they're just as comfortable with UI UX um, as with system architecture. Mm -hmm. They're absolute unicorns. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're one in a million. And my business partner is one of them. Yes. Um, he, he can do that. Yes. Um, he's actually an accomplished artist, um, and he's a very capable um, software engineer and, and, and solution architect. Mm -hmm. um, and absolutely, he'd be like he would actually represent that skill set yes. that I'd imagine would, would would lead a government ministry or a giant company yes. really, really, really well because they'd be able to have that bird's eye view and make strategic decisions based upon understanding the lie of the land. Um, I mean, like, why is Ashley Bloomfield so good at mm. running um, our COVID-19 response here in New Zealand? The answer is that he's a subject matter expert. Yeah. He, he's a technocrat. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm pro-technocracy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, and, and, and I think we can get away from this. Because I think it actually is deeply entrenched with those incumbent power structures, with, with um, middle-aged white male leadership, mm. um, because we associate leadership um, with managerial skill. Yeah. And, and that's required. But I would say, honestly, um, the hard skills of the subject matter, plus the soft skills of being empathetic and caring about human outcomes, and, and to use the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Maori term, uh, we hear that all the time, and yet we don't necessarily work backwards from that as a first principle yeah. um, when we look at um, our power structures and our hierarchies and who's actually making the decisions. Mm. So I, I'm not, I don't want to sound too um, like a wet blanket here because I think it is changing. I think that leadership is changing. Mm -hmm. I think that what I want to see, which is more technical competence in, in um let's call it big organization decision-making. Yeah. Um, I think that that is happening gradually. I mean, every generation wants to beat its own chest and say, when my generation's in power, it's yep. going to be sweet. Right. Um, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, um, wave the flag for millennials for a moment. I'm about as old as a millennial can be. Um, but I think that as we're coming into leadership now, um, as we're in our mid-30s, um, yeah. I think that it is actually creating some positive outcomes. Tell me if I'm wrong. No, I hate <laughs> Your opinion, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, and I, I nod around my experience in local government and even national government about some of the structures and the people who have that power, whatever mm. that power articulates itself out as. Um, it might be as simple as a budget holder right through to policy making or, yeah, running a huge department. They are historically older, pale male and stale, and... Mm. There is a slow sea change I'm starting to see. I've done some work, as you know, in central government, in different departments, uh, doing internal events and learning stuff and some coaching. And I'm already seeing the, the power vacuums, which I call them little power vacuums, because they're very vertical and they're static and they, they, they suck in and they keep power. Right? And that's the thing. That's what they do. Um, changing. And, and, you know, you're seeing more... Uh, variety mm -hmm. and diversity mm -hmm. in these uh, positions of power and younger mm -hmm. leaders as well, which is so nice to mm -hmm. see. And, I, and that's what I, I love about the, the whole startup community in some respects is this hunger um, for trying, don't care about age and stuff. Yeah. And something I think, though, from coming back to something we spoke about was mentorship that is missing is that kind of intergenerational mentorship, both up and down. Yes. Because mm. I think, you know, if you cut yourself off, because sometimes with age does not come wisdom. Yes. It just actually comes, you know, it brings about stasis. Yes. Because I'm older, I've done it that way, and it's yep. a and stasis, status quo, whereas, you know, younger people are a lot more fluid in terms of their approach to t different things, and a lot more older people could learn. From that, and I'm, I, I'm thinking, is there something there that intergenerational mentorship upwards? Mm. I think I, I agree. And it's like a, a for for you know when I, when I walked in there, Derek was already 
working with diversity, mm. but, but meaning that he was just picking the right person for the job, right? Mm. You just, because that's what it happens when you just hire blind, like that's the best person yeah. for getting here. And I think for, for, for me, that is that, right? That, that intergenerational, because I'm there to kind of turn it from a startup to a company. Mm. And of course it takes experience, but I'm not the one coding on Unreal. Mm. Those are the, for the baby geniuses. And mm. my engineer, my director of software engineering, he's all of 24. Mm. I mean, because wow. he's yeah. that good. Mm. But it's because he's one of those unicorns that can do, you know, has the logical and the creativity and he has the, the kind of uh, the emotional maturity mm. after being guided. Now, when I walked in there, he was doing everybody else craziness. But as soon as I set the pillars of structure to kind of get yeah. things, then he just locked right in and he's, he's great. Beautiful. You know, and so I, I didn't really matter how young he was. He could do it. Um, but again, I, I'm, I, I'm a sucker for talent. Like, mm. if you can do it, I don't care mm. who you are, what you are, mm. who you're with. Just mm. do it because I know that's where you belong. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. And I also feel as though we're in a reality right now where technology is changing so quickly and what's possible is different every year apart. There's an analogy I've used in the past, but it's probably a bad analogy, but I'm using it anyway. Mm is that we're sort of like trying to build cars in the 1880s. And, mm -hmm. and someone's sort of like, well, what's a car? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure it's got wheels and a steering wheel as well, and it might have a chassis and, and a motor. Um, but we don't really know what we're doing um, in, in, in fields of technology <laughs> that are completely emergent. Mm -hmm. um, we, we know that you want to sit in it, and it'll take you from here to here, and that's fine. We can manage that outcome. Indeed. Um, but we, we, we keep trying to apply sort of standards of thinking and no, it's got, there's got to be a process and a way of doing it. It's got to be set in stone and tried and true um, and applying the sort of like British, you know, regal systems thinking to how we, you know, run an empire or something. Mm. Yeah. Um, when actually we're dealing with subject matter, which is just evolving on the fly and in the moment. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's good for us to be brought back to that. Like even with VFX. Yes. I mean, um, I remember when um, when, when uh, Smeagol, you know, first came out in the first Lord of the Rings film, mm -hmm. yeah. and we all thought that that was the best virtual effects we'd ever seen. Yeah. I rewatched Lord of the Rings the other day, and I was like, oh, I think it's way better in The Hobbit, you know? <laughs> like, like, you mm -hmm. can see the evolution of Smeagol yes. from, from, from yes. um, Lord of the Rings into The Hobbit. Yes. And they refined the process. They yeah. got, the technology got better, and now we have more believable Smeagol. Yeah. Just like in a year from now, um, we'll be building apps that'll be you know, more clued in with AI, mm -hmm. and there'll be more automation happening in the background, and that's to be expected. Do we know what we're doing? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Okay, I'm but glad you do. <laughs> for, for, for that, I mean, Weta has a singular focus of real is real, mm. which is why you saw that evolution. I mean, that's that's always the credo. It's like, can we make it realer than real? Mm. So the moisture in the eye, you know, the things that are so subtle in the human face. The pores. Yeah, the, can, the, 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 the shift of muscle in the family. Mm. They won an Academy Award for all that muscle work they did for apes. But that's really the yardstick. No matter how fanciful it is, mm. it's still a breathing, living thing. And if you bring those things forward, how much how, how matter it costs or how much it renders then you'll be able to kind of bring the audience like yourself mm. forward to believe yeah. it because mm. I can see the tears in the eyes. I can mm. see the refraction and I can see the, the subtle skin tone in the hair and mm. all that stuff. You just mind, just shaders and ones and zeros, geniuses. I mean, yeah. just like this madness. But of course, like you said, it changes every three to six months. Yeah. You just throw it away and start over. Mm -hmm. Unlike you guys, I had two terabytes to make contact. You could fit that in your pocket right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Two terabytes. I was getting Whoa, that shot's okay. final. Get it off that. Table. <laughs> I was like, 
Get out of there. I don't have any space. Mm. That's crazy you know, to think. Two, two terabytes. terabytes. Mm. That's all I had. I want to pitch a question back to you, DK. Yeah, for uh, sure. Sort of a, an amalgamation of sort of what you've already asked us. What, what do you think is, is going to be really prevalent for us in sort of the, the creative sectors mm. of, over the next sort of 10, 20 years? What trends do you see coming? What do we, what, what advice would you give to us yes. as people who are trying to navigate God. these things? I know that you're across all, <laughs> all industries simultaneously. Yes. I'm so, yeah, a polymath and not at all. For a while, I've been thinking about the idea of real life has more bandwidth and the fidelity that you're, I suppose, championing, realer and real. There's, there's, there is a threshold to that, actually. Once you've achieved it, ah, cool, now I can't differentiate. Done. So what happens then? Well, now you've got to introduce other layering of experiential feedback loops where they'd be like, because um, I remember going to Disney years ago, a long time ago, sitting in one of those theatres, which was like a 4D theatre. So it was in 3D, but when you were watching, I think it was The Bug's Life or something, uh, you could feel things running under your right, seat, right. right? Or something spatting, you got some water in your face <laughs> or something. So it tried to really extend the idea of what you were experiencing to now the physical, physical space, right? Mm. But then you got taste and sight and smell and all this other thing. So... That will probably be the next thing. Mm. But it will be a chase which I think will probably um, end up still leaning back into it's got to match reality. Mm. Yeah. So there's going to be, a, disc, it's going to be a, a, a division. They'll go off and go, sod reality. Let's make, I want to swim in clouds and feel like it's custard. Mm. So in other words, it's totally made up and I don't want any reality associated to my experience and I want to look like, I don't know, a 10-foot lizard, uh, but in pink. Mm. So I have no kind of referential link to the reality there, blah, blah, blah. And then you have the other thing, trying to reach reality. But you're also going to have an underlying current with people that are just going to carry on swimming under. And it's what we do here. We could have done this over Zoom or Skype or whatever. Why did we come here? You know, why did you turn up? Probably because I asked you. Probably because you still like doing these kinds of things. Still like connecting with humans. So Real Life Has More Bandwidth was a, a, a chapter heading of a book I wrote years ago. Mm. A novel, not a book, really. It was just 33 chapters on digital and social media with the stuff we used to, sh statements we used to throw out when we used to train people in BBC and mm -hmm. UNICEF and people like that. And we used to say these arresting things like, it's, a, it's not a mountain to climb, it's a wave to catch. Right, right, Meaning right. technology will always <laughs> iterate. So don't think about it as achievement, but mm -hmm. just jump on and have some fun, right? Mm -hmm. We were using, because we were teaching people to use digital social technology they never used. Mm -hmm. 2006, seven, eight time, all right? So, but one of the chapter headings was real life has more bandwidth. And that was my play to whatever comes out Nothing mm. will replace this, mm. yeah. really. So, yeah. champion an idea of augmenting whatever you do with the digital technologies, not replacing it. Oh. So, use it as an amplification tool, mm -hmm. an additive tool rather than a reductionist tool. What about the technologies, the near future technologies, which are very relevant to the screen um, sector as mm. well, um, that sort of blur the lines? Like, there's, mm. I think, um, I, I, I'm, I'm, might be using the wrong terminology here, but there's like standing wave sound generators or something, mm. which can create resistance in the air. Mm. So for example, you could have um, the sensation of uh, touching a textured surface 
my, in the air. Mm. My understanding is that um, the technology is at its early stages, um, but this is sort of its full potential of where it's going to go. Yeah, um, potentially that, it could rapidly you know, evolve out to something that's really haptically superior absolutely. to this. Yeah, oh, I'm touching a table now rather than I'm just feeling mm. some wind yeah. or something like a material brush me. Uh, you've also got the 4D sound stuff that's happening mm. where it's not just 3D sound, it's mm. 4D now. It's got so many layers of stuff. Mm. So everybody's attempting to replicate real. Mm. Yeah. So my, my, my thing is that actually go the other way and just lean into the reality and make that more experiential mm. and considered and kinder and all these other things. So where do you see the future for virtual reality? Or do you just, do you think? Don't know. I, it's not my field. Yeah. I've moved way out of digital now and try to focus on this. Yeah. I keep an eye on technology because I'm into it and yeah. I love it and I still keep an eye on every, all the platforms and things, but mm. it's not something I want to play with anymore. Fair um, enough. I mean, like I love virtual yeah. reality and I really enjoy it. Um, but something I'm really conscious of is that the people who, who spend a few weeks in it, yeah, uh, I mean, they, they come out the other end just shattered. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they don't Exhausted, know yeah. anymore. Oh, wow. um, it, it starts to re rewire the brain. Yeah. I mean, you get dizzy and you yeah. just feel disassociated. Mm -hmm. And the challenge I see for virtual reality is that it's going to do such a good job of um, re reproducing the world that it'll detract from the real world and that people will then struggle to deal with the real world, or they'll just get so nauseous yeah. that it's a technology that can never go too far because it mm. runs against the grain of what it means to be human. I don't know. So I'm aware of time yeah. and a battery change. Oh, right. So that's cool. Just jump in. Mm -hmm. I think we should... Battery change. <laughs> battery. It's just like makeup. Makeup, <laughs> more right. makeup. Make I love that idea. This is a technical failure. Of course. Uh, we'll just cut. I, I think we keep all this in. It's human, right? Mm. Apart from yeah. if we couldn't hear you. Probably picked up my mics, right? Oh, yeah, we'll still have an audio. Cool. Just, um, we just lost like the last minute. So That's good. good. No right. worries. We're back in business. Sweet as. Thank you. Thank you, Jono. You know, I, I always thought we were leaning towards, um, you know, the holodeck. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, as, we're talking about aspirational. Mm. Like, I just walk into a place um, somewhere else. That'd be amazing, you, right? You know, and it'll happen if we don't blow ourselves up, and I'm sure we'll get there. Mm. But the moment, I'd rather deal with what's possible rather than what's not possible. Like, you can make what's not possible in movies and games and stuff like that. Mm. But I'm all about, yeah, real life has more bandwidth. Yeah. That's, that's my... Is, isn't thing. it a funny trend that a lot of people who go really down the rabbit hole of technology, they're the people who are like, oh, I'm moving to New Zealand and I'm buying a cabin in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> they bounce back, yeah, <laughs> yeah they go yeah, to yeah, yeah. Henry Thoreau on us, right? Yeah, it's a real it, it happens. <laughs> yeah. It happens. Me, I, yeah, I'm, I'm out. Um, but just to, to finish off on the VR discussion, I did, because mm. only you mentioned Avatar mm. earlier on, mm -hmm. because I remember when that came out, there were like reports um, of people describing coming back out of the films and back to a duller reality, right. meaning mm. that they experienced on screen this this beautiful space and place and with so much vibe, vibe vibrancy and yes. vitality and everything else and the colors and then they went back to work and i was just like ah oh, it's not like avatar is it mm. yeah imagine that in a game then and then raising the thing go oh this is where i live mm. oh, i just yeah. want to live in here yeah and the matrix is happening it's coming i wonder you know which direction we'll go and will, will humans just need more and more and more and more and more simulation and will that impact you know writers and producers um, towards mm. having to sort of satisfy uh, an infinite curve yeah um or 
uh, will we end up becoming sort of uh, closer back to sort of the, the human experience of the past 10,000 years, mm-hmm. where actually getting rid of all your worldly connections and just going sitting on a cliff and yeah. watching the sunset with one person that you love. Mm. And, and if that is the epitome of the human experience mm. and if we'll end up sort of meditating more and becoming sort of more calm, considered people who don't need a hippocampal reward system to be firing <laughs> off dopamine all the time Constantly, in yeah. order to feel good about themselves. Yeah. Can, I, can I champion the idea of all of them? Yes, I, well, I, I would. I, I, agree. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Well, I mean, so Darwin said, you know, whatever can exist will exist. Yeah. And, and so I would agree with you. And that would yeah. be my answer too, mm-hmm. is that you'll get the spectrum just being pulled out even further. Yeah. That's all that's going to happen, I think. There's not going to be a, a Blade Runner future for us all. There's going to be a version of that somewhere, and someone is going to be in a dystopian, beautiful landscape with beautiful neon and, yeah, skinwalkers walking around and all that stuff. But uh, in terms of wrapping this up and aware of your time, um, I'd love to just ask a closing question about what are you going to take away from this experience? I like talking. I like talking to people with divergent ideas. Mm. That is, I mean, we've been pretty much in sync, but you know, it's for me. Most of my time is spent, you know, directing. This it's it's always nice to just have a conversation and just see where people are coming from without having to have not agenda. Makes it sound you know not nice, but Mm. I know we mean them. But just hearing and just listening and absorbing, and I I I really I really love it, and I was really excited Mm. about you know taking part of it because. I like I like I like people. I'm a, I, I like I like studying mm. people. I like hearing what they have to say. You know, especially especially this New Zealand is fascinating to me because I know we speak English, but it's still alien to me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I always like hearing you know different mm-hmm. because when you know the Kiwis that I work with, they're they're a little under pressure, mm. under the pressure of my making. So I, don't, I still don't feel like I get the true because they have gotcha. to conform to the structure that I put in place for them mm. for them. So it's always nice to kind of really get out and. See them in the wild. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. I don't know. Although I am a Welsh Kiwi, so I kind of I bring another element, a layer of confusion to it. But I love that idea of seeing them in their natural habitat. As a wild Kiwi who would love to be in your menagerie, um, I, I would say uh, I want to walk away from today with a new friend. Yeah. There we go. Yes, mm. I like it. Beautiful summary. And for me, it's just I love the bringing two worlds together. And sitting back a little bit, just like mm. poking the hornet's nest <laughs> and watching the buzz happen and go, yeah, okay, if I push too hard, I know where I'm going with that, especially you, Pip. But <laughs> no, it's lovely to see some commonalities and overlaps because that's the fun bit when they overlap. Well, I, I just love that these conversations can go public because, yeah. you know, we in the industry, you know, these conversations happen all the time. That's true. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, credit to you for actually um, giving people a voice and then taking that to the country and to the world because. Yeah, uh, how are we all going to fulfill our potential individually or collectively um, if we can't get real about it and sit down and also just be like really honest about the stuff that sucks. Yeah. Because yeah. the world is far from perfect, yeah. I'm pretty sure. It's true. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good humans. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Creative Welly episode 14. Hope you enjoyed that. Please subscribe via creativewelly.com. Big thanks to Jono over at Empire Films for producing the video podcast of this. Please go to the website to watch us in conversation. It's a much better experience. And we're hosted by David over at Flashdog Studios. Big thanks to him. Thank you for listening and keep having courageous conversations.